So I just wanted to make kind of a public announcement, which is that I, too, have had a weigh-in, um, kind of like Donald Trump. And remarkably, I weigh 101 pounds. I'm six feet tall <laughs> and strawberry blonde. And um, yeah. I just thought, you know, the, the listeners should know this. The miracles of self-reporting, Jane. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're all uh, we're all six feet tall here, we're right? All, we're, all, in the view, we're all six feet tall for 15 minutes. I have been sent by so many people the pictures of the football players who are actually six foot three and uh, two hundred and fifteen pounds, and uh, <laughs> it's it's amazing. The resemblance is uncanny between him and Tom Brady. If you you just have to get him in the right light, those two just it, almost <laughs> indistinguishable. Welcome to the political scene, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Evan Osnos, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Jane Mayer and Susan Glasser. Hi, Jane, and hi, Susan. Hey, Evan. Hey, Evan. Great to be with you. We are going to take a brief moment and talk about the elephant not in the room. Former President Trump has been indicted in four different states on 91 counts. He will be processed tomorrow in Georgia at the Fulton County Jail for charges relating to the 2020 election loss. You all signed a pledge to support the eventual Republican nominee. If former President Trump is convicted in a court of law, would you still support him as your party's choice? Please raise your hand if you would. That moment at the Republican debate really grabbed our attention this week. Normally in politics, when your opponent is facing dozens of serious criminal charges, that's a thing you take advantage of. Mugshots, in that sense, are supposed to be a liability, or at least they used to be. And yet six of the eight people running against Donald Trump, including Mike Pence, said they would still support him for president even if he was a convicted felon. And of course, on Thursday, getting his mugshot is exactly what Donald Trump was doing. So today, we're going to look at what's making most of the GOP primary field defend a man that they're ostensibly running against. Jane, Susan, let's start with the debate. It wasn't exactly history making, but there were some revealing moments and not all of them having to do with Trump. So let's start with you, Susan. What non-Trump related moments stood out most for you? Well, it's look, it, it is a little bit like talking about uh, a room filled with a big elephant and not mentioning the elephant. Right. So let's stipulate to the fact that, you know, that clip that we just played, I'm glad we're starting with it because I think it is the essence of the matter. It is really how you see the core of uh, this really underwhelming and, and sort of almost ersatz Republican field, right? You know, these are essentially the undercard. These are people who are running in case Trump blows up. They're running to be his vice president. They're running to elevate their own profile. Uh, but it's hard to see many of them are actually running as genuine opponents of Donald Trump. Uh, and so I found it very interesting to see the kinds of fissures, though, and divisions inside uh, today's Republican Party that did immediately come out with when you didn't have that sort of oxygen-sucking, uh, strawberry blonde man in the room. And to me, it was almost like the last gasp of the pre-Trump Republican Party versus kind of the Trumpist 
future that was sort of clashing. You had moments where they were arguing over uh, deficit spending and uh, government spending in ways that you know were reminiscent of the Tea Party era GOP. You had a very explicit and open clash uh, between those like Nikki Haley and Chris Christie, who are not only supporters, but impassioned supporters of Ukraine's fight against Russian aggression, clashing with those who have echoed the Trumpist line uh, uh, and are not supporting more spending from the United States for Ukraine, like Ron DeSantis and everybody's, you know, flavor of the moment, Vivek Ramaswamy. And so you did have, I think, a revelation about a party that is deeply divided against itself, not only on the question of Donald Trump, but more broadly on a whole array of ideological issues. The problem for them, though, is that I had a clear sense that what we associate with the GOP is really the past of the Republican Party and not so much its future. I have to agree. I mean, I think that it was so interesting to see one of the splits is just about sort of the old kind of Reagan era optimism where you have Pence saying this is a good country. They're good people. You know, we just need better leaders. And then you've got basically Vivek um, Ramaswamy coming right back into his face and, and painting this picture of that sort of goes along with with, uh, you know, Trump's view of car- American carnage. It's it's dark. It's angry. We're on the edge of sort of civil war in the view of the sort of the Trumpist group. And, and really Vivek, I think, sort of stood in for Trump in, in many ways in, in this debate. And I would say, I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of the commentary about how DeSantis just faded into the wallpaper. And in many ways he did, if, especially as someone who was supposed to be, you know, the heir apparent. But, but if you listen carefully to what he's saying, it's also incredibly dark, incredibly mm. angry. You know, how he was going to attack migrants and, and um, you know, bringing force on the Mexican border and um, firing people, firing Fauci. It's an incredibly negative angry image that he presents, I think. And, you know, and and the weird thing to me also was, if you look at polls afterwards, there was one in the Washington Post that said, you know, sort of among Republicans who won this debate, they thought that Vivek and DeSantis were the winners. And those are the two most negative guys that were on that stage. Well, we're not the target demographic for clearly <laughs> this debate. Clearly. And right. I think that's one point. But I think, Jane, you're absolutely right to highlight that because, Really, what you're you're seeing is the future is, lies in Trumpism with or without Trump. And that is the strong conclusion of call it sort of the Republican consultant class. And for years, they've essentially now refined this trick. What are they doing? Why do the candidates sound like, you know, Chris Christie, you know, made a joke that Vivek sounded like chat GPT. But why is that? Because what they're doing is they're they're listening carefully to what works on Fox News, finding out which really resonate the most with the Republican electorate they're trying to reach, and then having their candidates memorize spiels that are designed as if a Fox producer wrote them and spitting that back out at the same audience. And so it sounds like ChatGPT because I my, I suspect ChatGPT could have come up with a pretty good uh, uh, version of exactly what 
Vivek Ramaswamy and Ron DeSantis said to Republican voters the other day? I mean, in fact, I actually turned on, of course, Fox afterwards to take a look and see what they were saying. And you're, you're, you're completely right. It's a circular kind of message loop. And of course, Fox was, was televising this. And of course, they do it with an audience, which makes it into kind of like a, a wrestling match with people screaming. Um, and booing, and 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 it just creates this dynamic that is, you know, it, it had an out of control feel to it. I want to I want to drill down on something that we're talking about, but not explicitly, which is obviously the fact that nobody really attacked Trump, uh, with the exception of Chris Christie. Whether or not you believe that the criminal charges are right or wrong, the conduct is beneath the office of President of the United States. So it's this completely strange dynamic. Let's just, I I know we all know this, but we have to just pause on it for a second and try to dissect it, where you have people (laughs) purportedly running against this guy and they're refusing to attack the front runner. And I want to just, if you can, help us be explicit about what the strategy is there. What are they actually expecting? Susan, do you think, is it just intimidation? Are they just waiting for some event to drive him out of the race? Is there an actual strategy here or is it a sentimental kind of politics of cowardice and fear? (laughs) Can I choose all of the above, Evan? (laughs) Different candidates have different motives. Some of them, it strikes me, are probably pretty clearly running and auditioning for the part of Trump's uh, number two running mate. Trump has already said very publicly he's not going to select Mike Pence again after uh, what he considers Pence's betrayal on January 6th, which, of course, makes it all the more unbelievable that uh, Pence's hand shoots up when they ask if you would support Trump as the nominee even after he's a convicted felon, right? So, but to your question about the motivation Mm. of these candidates. So, number one, they're not really serious candidates. I think that would be normally the conclusion one would draw when you look at uh, their positioning in the race, when you look at the poll numbers. It bears repeating that never in the history, modern history, of polling has uh, any candidate ever overcome a deficit of the size of all of these candidates vis-a-vis Donald Trump at this point in an election. Uh, It's almost inconceivable that any one of the candidates could manage to topple Trump. Now, of course, what's not normal is that Trump has four pending criminal indictments against him. He is a visibly unhealthy not 215-pound, (laughs) 77-year-old man uh, facing enormous Stress. So, you know, there is, a, I suppose, a reasonable chance. I'm not sure what percentage you give it, but there's certainly a reasonable chance that for maybe non-campaigning related reasons, Donald Trump uh, does not end up as the nominee of the party. So part of it is positioning oneself in order to take advantage of a Trump implosion and to get his voters if they suddenly become available. Part of it is just to raise one's visibility, uh, or maybe they're auditioning for that, you know, talk show host uh, gig somewhere. Uh, you know, Chris Christie is an interesting character here, uh, the president's former friend. He's the the most openly uh, anti-Trump, never again Trump candidate on the stage. Uh, and, you know, perhaps he's doing that out of revenge. Uh, he ran against Trump in 2016, then endorsed him, then became his counselor, advisor, confidant. Trump asked him at one point to be his White House chief of staff. Uh, Christie didn't take the job, uh, has a well-known feud with Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. And then Trump, while 
Christie was prepping him for debate in 2020, basically gave Christie COVID and nearly killed Chris Christie. And so ever since then, uh, it's been a sort of personal narrative. Uh, so maybe he's running as revenge. Can we just pause there on the nearly killed Chris Christie and just please reiterate a point made once before on this show, which is this is the only slate of candidates where two of them had their lives threatened by the front runner because you've got Chris Christie who got COVID from Trump. And then, of course, you've got Pence who um, uh, Trump uh, seemed to encourage to be hanged. So um, it's just an unusual situation. By the way, I must say, poor Asa Hutchinson, though, let's uh, before we move on. He is the other one, along with Chris Christie, uh, who who vehemently uh, uh, opposes the idea of a second Trump term and, in fact, made the point on stage uh, that, that a number of legal scholars are making right now that he believes that uh, Trump might not be constitutionally eligible to run for president again because of his uh, state of insurrection against the United States. Do you think the rest of the world is paying attention to any of this primary or to Trump's behavior around all of these indictments? I mean, what do you think, Evan? I'm curious. You're over there. In, listen, um, in case we have not highlighted this, Evan is in China, where there are not a lot of open debates allowed. Um, and we think of, uh, you know, yeah. open debates as being part of democracy. So yeah. um, what, what do you think, Evan? Well, uh, I will tell you that um, there weren't a lot of people here watching the Republican debate. That is that is for sure. I, th- I think I was in a distinct minority of taking an interest in this. And that really actually, I mean, all seriousness, it caught my attention how few people are paying attention to American politics. And that was not true uh, you know, four or five years ago, it's sort of at the beginning of the Trump phenomenon uh, where people were just constantly asking about it. It, it. I get the very strong sense that people have just kind of come to expect this of us now as a country, that this is just part of our new national profile, which is wild. I mean, I had an encounter with a Chinese official where I was kind of rattling off a little bit about American politics. I said, you know, we're in this strange moment where we've got this former president who's been charged with four different cases. And I said, and it's it's got to be, I don't know, dozens of counts now. And he said, 91. It's 91 counts. <laughs> and so- he, So somebody's paying attention. He, he, the Chinese government is paying close attention. They're trying to figure out what this means. Could um, you watch the bit? I'm just curious. I mean, is that, was the debate available? And were Trump's comments, you know, his interview with Tucker Carlson widely available in China? No, it wasn't featured very prominently. I mean, I was able to watch it online by going to, you know, Fox News, but uh, it, it's not One the kind of thing that they put on state television, no. One thing that's really interesting, Evan, from the vantage point of being in in China is that it is the Republican Party that has been the most uh, sort of vehemently outspokenly uh, critical and almost cheerleading for uh, a more explicit rift between the two countries in a way that has has concerned me as a longtime foreign policy hand with the idea that, you know, we're creating an inevitability of future conflict with China if you listen to some of the Republican rhetoric in particular. But even Democrats have become much more uh, hawkish about China, much less willing to engage on the terms that they did in the past. So, you know, you would think that from that vantage point, the Chinese officials would be paying very close attention to the political debates in the U.S. because they're going to have real consequences for American foreign policy. Yeah, one of the interesting conversations I had with with somebody who works on foreign policy here um, from the Chinese government side was uh, the challenge they're going to face is 
how do you separate what is campaign rhetoric? And they sort of know to expect that every four years that you get a big upsurge in kind of more aggressive foreign policy talk. How do you separate that from what is a deeper strategic shift and an orientation of the United States? Because these two things over the course of the next, you know, 12, 13 months are going to merge and it could be very volatile if they interpret everything that comes out of the campaign as a declaration of American policy. Evan, you know, one of the the ways China came up in the debate was as um, a foil for the Republican candidates who did not want to talk about climate change and didn't want to say what America should do um, to ameliorate it. Instead, what they do is they say, well, basically, it's China's fault. It's China and India. And um, and so they become sort of the the excuse. And I just wondered, I mean, is China really the problem? I don't know. Do, is China aware and thinking a lot about climate change at this point? Are they moving on it? I mean, and the other thing that, that they were talking about was how China creates, it was kind of contradictory, so many of the solar panels yeah. um, that were helping China um, when we try to do something about climate change. And I'm just curious, how does it look from your end? Yeah, the the one of the attack lines has become not just solar panels, but if you're encouraging electric vehicles, well, you're just putting money into China's pocket because they make all the batteries. And this is right. a, a this is a it's been a dynamic for for a while that you can escape responsibility and action on things like climate change by just saying, well, if China's not doing anything or is not doing enough, that that we don't have to do anything, and it's a kind of recipe for inaction. The truth is, you know, China is. Uh, at times has made moves on climate because of its own self-interest. I mean, they will have more people displaced by rising sea levels than any country in the world, by including Bangladesh. So th- they are not in a position of being able to just throw up their hands and say, we don't care about it. Uh, but the truth is that it is going to take both the United States and China and India to play a role in making a meaningful dent in the problem. But for the moment, it has become a real cudgel. And you hear it on climate issues and a whole range of other things. One thing that's striking in the debate, Evan, is that still, still the only person on that stage who volunteered that uh, climate change was real was Nikki Haley. And that has been, I think, a distinguishing characteristic and not in a uh, good sense of the word distinguishing characteristic of the the modern Republican Party, even before Donald Trump, it's, it's really the only major, even among conservative political parties in, in the Western world, it's essentially the, the only major one that refuses to embrace scientific consensus uh, when it comes to global warming and, uh, you know, essentially promotes that along with a broad array of conspiracy theories to the point about not normal. What does not normal mean? Climate change, I think, is a very specific, very concrete, very real and increasingly real uh, to people and to voters and to impacting individual lives. So, you know, that's one thing that, that's that's notable and striking. Uh, yeah. China certainly uh, doesn't take that position. And it's an impediment in and of itself to any uh, future diplomatic arrangements. I, I would just argue it's, it's, it's not surprising if you take a look at the funding of the Republican Party candidates, um, and not just the presidential ones. It's a party that's captured by fossil fuel interests, and it has been for years, you know, beginning with the Koch brothers and, and moving on from there. If you take a look at the money flow, it the, there is no lobby in the history, I think probably of, of certainly of this country, that has been as powerful as the oil industry, and it has captured the Republican Party. 
And it's become even a, now it's a, it's it's now part of the culture war to genuflect and say that that uh, that uh, climate change is a hoax, which is exactly the word that that Trump is using, exactly the word that um, Vivek used as well. Which I thought was striking, considering that Vivek is trying to position himself as the voice of a young generation to to pretend as if young Americans somehow believe that climate change is a hoax was just a, a bizarre kind of abandonment of his identity for a moment. All right. Uh, Guys, let's take a quick break, and then we're going to look at Trump's interview with Tucker Carlson and the Republicans' continuing embrace of authoritarian behavior. The political scene from The New Yorker will be back in just a moment. If you've been enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform of your choice. And while you're there, don't forget to hit the follow button so you never miss an episode. Thank you so much for listening. At the same time that the debate was on, of course, Trump and Tucker Carlson had an interview that was broadcast on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. Did anything stand out to you, Susan uh, and Jane, from that discussion that you think is going to have longer consequences than just the moment itself? Well, first of all, Evan, it is notable and interesting that, you know, Trump chose basically to spend the time of the debate. uh, You talk about the question that we didn't really get to of, you know, what was Trump's strategy in skipping the debate? Uh, His strategy was basically to sit in Tucker Carlson's basement with him and uh, to be sort of two Fox exiles, kind of like bitching and moaning about, (laughs) you know, how much Fox sucks these days. And, uh, you know, it was a really, like, if you listen to it, it's a reminder that Trump is so confident in the hold that he has over this Republican electorate. He basically, uh, you know, he's, he's almost disdainful of them, right? Like, this is not an interview of a man who's actually pitching for votes. It's just, it's like this incredible, bizarre, narcissistic tangle that that Tucker uh, very cynically seems to uh, be goading him on. Remember that uh, the Dominion lawsuit produced uh, many uh, notable revelations uh, and and seems to have resulted in Tucker Carlson's ouster from Fox, but it also uh, produced information showing that Tucker Carlson basically disdained Donald Trump, uh, thought he was a, a force for evil in politics and in the Republican Party. And yet there he is, uh, the two of them once again thrown back into the trench of uh, mutual dependence and uh, need. And so I thought it was really just a, a classic visual of these two mm. exiles, yeah. you know, in the wood paneled basement of Tucker Carlson. As far as what Donald Trump actually said, uh, Tucker Carlson kept goading him on. That was probably the most notable, like in a news sense of that interview. Tucker Carlson repeatedly raised the specter of political violence and political assassination even. It started with protests against you, massive protests, organized protests by the left. And then it moved to impeachment twice. Right. And now indictment. I mean, the next stage is is violence. Are you worried that they're going to try and kill you? Why wouldn't they try and kill you? Honestly. Uh, they're savage animals. They are people that are sick, really sick. And it seemed to be this, almost an idea that Carlson wanted to be implanted in the minds of those who were participating in it, even when Trump didn't sort of really go along with that. But asked Trump about political violence. What's he going to do? Exactly what he did. He uh, turned it into praise and hosannas for the rioters and insurrectionists of January 6th, he continues to say, well, this was the most beautiful day ever. People 
in that crowd said it was the most beautiful day they've ever experienced. There was love in that crowd. There was love and unity. I have never seen such spirit and such passion and such love. Not only projecting uh, nothing to be ashamed about, uh, about a, you know, a horde of pro-Trump violent mobsters invading their own capital uh, and seeking to shut down the U.S. Congress. Uh, to Trump, it's a beautiful day. Uh, he, he and others promised to pardon the January 6th uh, rioters who have uh, been sentenced to lengthy, in some case, prison terms. And it's a remarkable reminder of the stakes at play here. But um, what what an extraordinary and, and bizarre interchange I thought it was. <laughs> bizarre is right. I, I mean, it's, you know, one of the things that's important was the the forum that it was on. I mean, Trump was banned by Twitter before when it was Twitter, and he said he would never come back and he was going to start his own truth social. There he was on Elon Musk's now called X. He's back. And, you know, this is a—it does not augur well for— um, information during this campaign cycle to have him back on what was Twitter, I think. And I agree with Susan that the failure of Trump to disown the idea that violence might be Mm. necessary and on its way into this country instead of just um, civil debate and civil elections, that that is a scary prospect. And he certainly did. It is true that Tucker Carlson was goading him, but he did not deny it. He just sort of said, well, I don't know. And there was something else he said that I thought was kind of revealing in a personal way. Um, You know, for some reason, Tucker Carlson kept pushing the idea that Jeffrey Epstein might have been murdered rather than that he committed suicide. It seems to be a conspiracy theory that um, that interests Tucker Carlson a lot. And if you listen carefully to what Trump said about it, I thought I heard some projection in it that might be interesting mm. to think about his mindset as he faces the potential of a prison cell himself. He said about Jeffrey Epstein. I think he probably uh, committed suicide. He had a life with, you know, beautiful homes and beautiful everything. And he, uh, all of a sudden, he's incarcerated and not doing very well. He seems to have thought a little bit about what it might be like to be locked up in a prison cell, even as he's showing the world his scowling face and his defiance and his motto of never surrender. This seems to have entered his mind, I would say. Yeah, it does feel as if we passed some threshold where this is no longer just a sort of simple, uh, useful campaign instrument for him. He's now entered into a different phase. But I want to stay with you for a second, Jane, on something interesting that you sort of surfaced, this idea of the violent rhetoric that we have going on now in this in this campaign that's just on the, it really has just sort of entered the permanent main stage of Republican language. You've been thinking recently about some of the studies that have been done on the health of democracy and the ill health of democracy. What What are you paying attention to when it comes to what this rhetoric says beyond just the political moment. Well, I mean, I was very interested in looking back at a book that was very important when it first came out several years ago, as right after Trump was elected, by um, Daniel Zyblatt and Stephen Levitsky that was called How Democracies Die. And it had a kind of a basic checklist of items, I think it was four items that, that to take a look at, that, that are the the 
basically the warning signs. And if you go down that list, you can see that we've checked them all off at this point. And it's not just Trump, but the Republican Party itself has. The rejection of the opponent as legitimate, rejection of the rules of democracy, um, claiming you won an election that you lost, um, and uh, rejection of norms. You saw the all of those candidates just reject the norm that has always held in previous times that a convicted felon is not someone you want to elect to be president. And um, suspension of civil liberties is another one. And you've, you've, we've, heard from, we've heard from Trump. You know, he thinks the Constitution should be suspended. And you listen to a number of those candidates who were attacking the Justice Department, saying they would fire the attorney general. They would fire the director of the FBI. They talk about the Justice Department as weaponizing you know, itself as a political arm when it very much is not. Um, and, and, and Merrick Garland has really bent over backwards not to do that. So you can see we're really far down this list in, in how democracies die. You know, it's interesting, Jane, that you bring up uh, this book, which I think is, is a very powerful sort of checklist approach. You know who thought that that was a powerful approach it was actually one Joseph Biden, yeah. who actually carried the book around, was observed carrying the book around during the 2020 campaign. And I, I think what's notable to me, uh, you know, Trump for many years has sort of uh, arguably checked off many of those boxes. Uh, for example, the demonization of his opponents. That's something from the second that he stepped into the political arena. In fact, you could argue that was one of his sort of trademark political techniques, right? Is, is He actually is called uh, uh, rivals human scum. Uh, certainly the, the weaponization of the Justice Department on his own behalf was was a constant theme and desire of Trump's throughout his four-year tenure in the White House, and it would be even more associated with him were he to come back to power. But what I think is very interesting is that it really was only with January 6th and the explicit use of violent, not only rhetoric, but uh, willingness to actually accept the use of violence itself as a tool in the pro-Trump, pro-Republican arsenal that I think the final Rubicon was crossed by the Republican Party. So you could argue in 2020, I think most of the criteria had already been met. I think that uh, the post-January 6th GOP, the post-January 6th Donald Trump has very explicitly fulfilled arguably the final aspect on that checklist. And what I find so worrisome looking ahead to 2024 is that uh, once you've crossed that Rubicon, you see that Trump and and those surrounding him no longer feel the need to hide their agenda, to disguise it, to speak in more conventional terms, even if that's not really how they uh, are planning to go about things. Now, uh, I think they've reached a much more explicit phase of their anti-democratic uh, program and agenda. And Trump's campaign, remember, is about terminating the Constitution if need be in order to get what he wants. It's about vengeance. It's about uh, the explicit promise on day one to investigate uh, Joe Biden uh, and to use the machinery of government uh, for his own personal end. So I, I find that we're sort of have met, if you will, the the final pieces of the checklist. You know, I I was thinking about this process of the decline of democracy 
because, look, I was watching this debate here on a reporting trip in China, as we've talked about, and it was really something striking that that caught my attention, which is that if you go back to 2012, so go back more than a decade ago, there was this big moment in Chinese communist politics when Xi Jinping came to power. And there was this one day where he was standing with all the new members of the what's called the Standing Committee of the Politburo. And the image itself was notable for one thing, which is that everybody was dressed exactly the same. Everybody had the same dyed black hair. They were wearing dark suits and white (laughs) shirts. And Interestingly, they were all wearing red ties with the exception of one of them. And for years, I used to sort of refer to that image, that tableau, as a sign of the kind of ideological repression and convergence within the Communist Party that was leading it away from this period of what used to be called collective leadership towards what is now this politics dominated by one man. Well, you can see where this is going, guys. But if you watch the (laughs) debate the other night, how strange was it that they all showed up? All the men on that stage were wearing red ties and white shirts. I mean, that is not something we've had in American politics. I mean, you don't have Obama or Reagan. They didn't define the the physical aesthetic of the party in a way that Trump is doing now. That is a different territory. It may sound superficial, but it is a sign of something deep. Yeah, absolutely. The semiotics of the red tie is uh, <laughs> going to produce many future uh, uh, PhD dissertations in the United States. But, you know, I think that you will hear more. Right now, you have Biden running for re-election, you know, not wanting to comment on every twist and turn of the Republicans, right? You know, their strategy. He, you know, he jumped in, his campaign jumped in a little bit. They were uh, making some hay with one of Nikki Haley's comments in the debate about how it's Republicans as well as Democrats that are responsible for the deficit spending. But other than that, mostly Biden has been silent, I would say, about the recent extreme. Certainly, he doesn't want to be sucked into commenting on Trump's legal troubles because Trump is making such an aggressive effort to claim persecution by Biden's administration. But I think that as they did with their closing argument in the 2022 midterm campaign, that the sort of existential fight for the soul of the nation rhetoric is going to reappear uh, as an important democratic platform when it comes to 2024, because it's not just the old two party, let's argue over policy debates and, you know, who, what's the size of uh, the tax bill that you should pay, that it's really something much more fundamental at issue. So I'm glad that Gene, uh, you know, sort of brought that up as the framing for what's going on. Uh, you know, okay, and I'm going to go out on a limb here as usual, <laughs> be the one uh, sort of optimist to some extent anyway, as we end on a very dark moment, which is I am not convinced that that mugshot and these events, these legal accusations, charges, trials, entanglement of Donald Trump is really that big a help to him. Everybody's saying this is going to be good for him. I look at that face on that mugshot, and I don't see that as fitting into the long list of faces of American presidents that we've looked at as we were growing up. It's a it's a different look. It doesn't have any of the optimism of America. Um, and I think yeah. to some extent it's spin on the part of Trump to try to turn this 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 vice into a virtue. And I am really not sure this country's going to buy it. Well, again, Jane, you know, it's narrow 
uh, potential benefit to him in consolidating and reinforcing Republican support. But I think that's why Democrats, they don't want to be chortling too much in public. But I think there are many, many critics of Donald Trump and many uh, uh, political observers who agree with you that, uh, you know, Republicans are chasing after fool's gold here, that uh, that which makes Trump stronger with the Republican base is exactly what makes him toxic and unelectable in a general election. My worry, my worry, I think that's true. I think it's true that uh, there are certainly more independents and possibly a few more Republicans who won't vote for uh, a felon or a possibly convicted felon in a general election. But it's an extreme risk to take. Trump may be the weakest Republican candidate uh, uh, in terms of facing Joe Biden, but Joe Biden himself uh, you know, could still lose the election. But um, you know, it, it isn't spin- that it helps him in the Republican electorate. But uh, in history, I think history's going to castigate this man uh, in a way that uh, no other president has been castigated. Well, I think, as you say, there's a reason why Joe Biden is not talking all that much right now about the Republican field, because they're doing all of the hard work for him to some degree. And I I think, Jane, to your point, uh, there are a lot of Americans who are watching the events of the last week, whether it's that debate or it's this mugshot, and they say to themselves, how the hell did we get here? How did we get here? <laughs> but it has been, if not uh, a pleasure talking about this topic, it is always a pleasure to be talking about hard things with you guys. So uh, thank you both. Well, Evan, thank you. And um, safe travels. Come on home soon. Yeah, great to be with you both. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Evan Osnos. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia and Dan Richards. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. We'll be back next week, and thank you so much for listening.